Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. To ring the bell today. <laughs> oh, well, we're in Psalms chapter 14 today. Let's pray and we'll get started into that. Father, we just thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity to just hear your, your voice through it. And we pray that, that we would be open to that. Um, and we just praise you for the opportunity just to, uh, to have your word and, and hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Psalms 14 uh, and Psalms 53. Uh, interesting, if you look at the two Psalms, 53 and 14, they're almost identical. Uh, but... There's a couple nuances in it that uh, will jump out at you, uh, especially if you were reading it in Hebrew, uh, which we are not doing. So in light of that, there is a difference between 14 and, 50 and, and 53 in uh, the uses of the word Yahweh and Elohim. In 53 that only uses Elohim, um, which is consistent with book two, which is chapters 42 to 72. Book one likes to kind of bounce back and forth, but prefers the word Yahweh. And I think it's very interesting to see this nuance in this chapter um, because Elohim can apply not just to God. Elohim different points applies to uh, to Abraham at one point to the the leaders at one point uh, it may apply to the angels at another point and so there's a little bit different uh, understanding behind that and you're going to see how that plays out in this chapter or both of these chapters specifically in 14 um, so Book 1, 1 through 41, covers mostly, refers to God as Yahweh. That is a formal name of God. Book 2 refers to Elohim as God, right? And it's a more, uh, um, what's the word? Yeah, more extensive, but more um, universal, yeah. Anyway, because it repeats in two different places, a lot of people think that, that there are two applications. One application being that this is about Israel and the, the, uh, the prophets and, and the way the world is rejecting God's word. And then it has a future representation of the coming of Messiah and, and the apostasy and Antichrist and that spirit of Antichrist. And so we'll see that play out as well. Second Chronicles, uh, actually, <laughs> I'm jumping ahead. Um, chapter 53, the other distinction is it has a different introduction. Uh, Psalms 14 starts for the choir director of Psalm of David, but 53 says for the choir director, according to the Mahalath, a mescal of David, which gives you a little bit more words to play with. Uh, Mahalath is actually Esau's wife, the daughter of Ishmael, who he you can read about in 
Genesis 28, also David had a son who named his daughter Mahalath. Um, and she ended up marrying Rehoboam. So if you remember the story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam and that whole conflict, you have some some in, uh, application there. Uh, it may refer to a, malala, man, a tuning of the instrument or maybe even a specific instrument because it actually means suffering affliction. And so what you're going to see in the chapter has something to do with a sickness or an affliction of society. And it, Spurgeon actually calls it the song of man's disease. And uh, interesting idea, especially when we look at the end time stuff. Anyway, let's jump into verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They've corrupted, uh, they are corrupted. They've committed abominable deeds, and there is no one who does good. Interesting, in chapter 10, uh, verse 4, he says, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. His thoughts are, there is no God. Now it's moving from just our thinking to the heart of man, that our heart literally says, there's, there's no God. And the other interesting thing is, back to that nuanced word, the heart says, there is, the fool says in his heart, there is no Elohim, right? Now, if we take that nuanced word and we apply it that there is no spiritual power beyond themselves. Because when you, when you take all those ap applications of Elohim, the word changes to just spiritual authority. And so what it's actually saying is not just there's no God, but there's nothing above me. I have no spiritual power above me. And that's the heart of the fool. It says, I am, I am the absolute authority, right? And the reality is that was kind of the heart of the Sadducees. They didn't believe in anything spiritual. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in, in healing. And they were really confused with Jesus, but they were deceived and they had a foolishness in their religiosity that they'd said, oh, these, these are the rules. We keep the rules. We just do this, but it's just about rules. It's not really about spiritual power. Um, and that's a danger we have as, as religious people, that we just become about rules and we deny the spirit of what the, rule, the ruler is. That God is not just about rules. There's a spirit behind it. And we are to submit to that spirit. And we are to be indwelled by that spirit. Interesting. The Bible says the devil acknowledges God and he remains subject to him. He knows that there is a God. 
and he has to be subject to him. T.J. Brooks, uh, T. Brooks says, he that does not believe that there's a God is more vile than a devil. To deny there is a God is a sort of atheism that's not even to be found in hell. That's a sad statement, but it's a reality. It is the fool who says to his heart, there's nothing. And what's actually happening in the verse goes back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their ways upon the earth. And what was the problem? By denying God, they had become corrupt. By denying authority, they became corrupt. And the reality is, as you come into that corruption, the society that allows it to continue slowly degrades and it becomes corrupt as a whole as opposed to just one person that's being corrupt. What is it? One bad apple uh, makes the whole, the whole basket bad, right, eventually. Same idea here. And Romans responds to this. Chapter 1, verse 19 says, Who, What can be known about God is plain to them. And then he moves on to say in verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In verse 28, he moves on and says, They didn't see fit to acknowledge God. I think that's a really sad progression. They had the plain reality of God. They claimed to be wise, smarter than God, and they became fools. And then, in result, they wouldn't acknowledge God. Interesting, the word fool is Nabal, which implies an aggressive perversity. And I think that's exactly what happens when we move away from the authority of God. We become quickly perverse. Uh, Titus chapter 1 um, says, To the pure, all things are pure. But the, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God. But by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. He's talking to people. He's talking to Titus, who is a leader in the church. And he's talking about people who have come into the church that have denied God in their actions. And we need to guard ourselves in that because we're all susceptible to that. Verse 2 says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. It literally is the Lord, this is the formal name of God, Jehovah, looks down on the earth to see if anybody seeks after Elohim 
that is something higher than themselves. To see if there's anyone who understands that they are not the absolute power. He's looking down for people to seek something greater. Hebrews says in verse chapter 11, verse 6, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's the heart. God is looking for our longing and he's put that longing in our hearts that something is missing and that's what his desire is for us to long for him and to seek after him Luke 11 Jesus says so ask and it will be given to you seek and you'll find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and he to him who knocks, it will be open. The interesting thing in that chapter is those words all imply a continued action. It's not just, oh, I, I came to your door, I knocked once, you weren't there, so I left. There was a progressive knocking, a progressive seeking, a progressive I, I am longing for this. And that's what we need to have. It's not just a one and done thing. God wants us to long for him and have a relationship with him that we seek after and mature in. Acts 17. Such a great chapter, but he goes into verse 26 that he made for, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries and their habitations, that they would seek God. In other words, God put you in the country where you are, in the time where you're at, in the house that you're living in, in the city you're in, for a purpose that you might grope and seek after God. It was designed perfectly for you individually. And I think that's encouraging. Because sometimes, sometimes we look around and we're like, am I in the right place? Well, God's allowed you to be there. You are at the moment where you need to be. He's put you there. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we exist. As even some of your own prophets, poets have said, for we are his children being then the children of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as gold or silver or stone or images formed by the art and thoughts of men. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The point now is God has overlooked our ignorance. We have rejected him. And God wants us to seek after him. For David, he doesn't have that revelation yet. And he goes back to Genesis, where God destroyed everything, except for Moses and his kids. They've all turned aside. Verse 3. They've all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The idea here is, is not that, that they just got distracted. It's that they deliberately turned away. They rejected it and went the other way. This word for corrupt is... Uh, I can't pronounce it. It, it. The idea is the idea of sour milk, of something turning rotten or rancid. They've together become rancid. That is what God sees on the earth, is something that's just nasty. I was uh, cleaning out some stuff uh, earlier this week. I came apart, uh, across this jar, and it had, like, this moldy, nasty stuff in it. And I was like, okay. And it was a glass, and I was like, okay, do I clean the glass or do I throw it away? Yeah, You know, you know that feeling? <laughs> That's what God sees when he looks on humanity. Is it really worth cleaning or is it just <laughs> let it go? It's nasty. I did clean it actually. <laughs> Romans 9.22 says that we've become objects of wrath fit for destruction. And that's a disturbing thought. Earlier in chapter nine or chapter three, verse nine of Romans, he says, We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there's none who seek for God, for all have turned aside together, they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's none, not even one. He goes on in verse 23 to say, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, not ours, but his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at this present time, 
so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It says that we've all been given a measure of faith. But it's our responsibility to exercise that faith. We're called to believe on the Lord. And that requires our action. Our response to what he's revealed to us. In one sense, we have all sinned. We've all turned away. And there is a overall depravity of men, of wicked, evil, corrupt humanity. But he goes on to talk of a deeper wickedness. Verse 4, Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? Once again, we're going back to the idea of Jehovah. Who are we to call on? It's not just any God. It's not just whatever spiritual power. We are to call on the Lord Jehovah, God. John 3, 3 says, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. That's what we need, a new birth. To be alive to the spirit. Romans 10 verse 2 says they have zeal for God. But not in in accordance with knowledge. They are excited about it but they don't really know him. For not knowing about God's righteousness. And seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He jumps ahead in verse 14. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, look who has believed our report. Those feet are to be your feet. It's not just the people who are teaching in the pulpit. It's the whole of the church. You are to bring the good news to the world. You've been commissioned for this purpose. But they're not going to believe. It doesn't mean you stop the message. We need to speak the truth in love. Despite being rejected. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. 
Verse 5. There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Interesting, the beginning here is God is with the righteous. This is Elohim is with the righteous. If we transition this verse to the spiritual authority, the authority of spiritual power is with the righteous. That is the body of Christ. And what happens? The world will put them to shame. But Elohim, God, is his refuge. That's exciting. In chapter 53, it says, There they were in great fear where, there, uh, where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who rejected or who encamped against you. Uh, you put them to shame because God has rejected them. What's happened? They were in great fear where there had not been any fear. We're talking about the wicked. They God has scattered the bones of those who have encamped against you, against the righteous. You, the Lord, put them to shame because God has rejected them. Interesting that fear accompanies the denial of God. Or could it be said that anxiety is the plague of those who refuse to call on him? and entrust themselves to him. How do we get over that? Call upon the name of the Lord. But for the wicked, we have the same play out in Revelation chapter 6, where he says, The kings of the earth and the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave and free man hid himself in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath has come. And who is able to stand? What did it say? There was fear where there was no fear before. The wicked, the fool, says in his heart, there's no God, there's no reason to fear. He has no authority over me. But that will change. There will be a time when he says, enough. And the wrath will come. And the fear will grip them. And just as he says, God will scatter the bones of him who encamps against you. The afflicted are despised among their message of truth, along with their message of truth. But God is your stronghold. 
your protection. Interesting, the wicked that shamed the counsel of the afflicted are now in chapter 53 shamed by God. In other words, their treatment is revisited upon them. God treats them the way they treat others. According to their own standards. You're weaker than me, so I'm going to oppress you. Right? You're going to be judged. Verse 7. David, in light of this understanding, says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, where when the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. 53 says, when God restores his captives, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Who restores? It's not just anybody. It's Jehovah. David is looking forward to the coming of Messiah to deal with this corruption. Longing for his people to be redeemed. But for us, Matthew 1 says, you shall call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. He has come. And he has offered the salvation from the sin that we so eagerly jump into. That we have rejected God for. And he's offered that grace. But the reality is, all the creation longs for that liberation. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, that is, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we've been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes for what he's already sees? But if we hope for what we don't see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. How do we hope? Persevering, seeking God, longing for him, knocking being led by him. Romans goes on in chapter 11 for I don't want you brethren to be uninformed a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as written 
the deliverer will come from J from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. A lot of people have taught that Israel is done. I, I really have a problem with that in light of this verse. Something's going on here. There is a time for those of us who are not Jewish to be to be saved. But there is a time when God's going to call Israel back to himself. And it's, it, it's pretty clear here. He goes on from the standpoint of the gospel. They are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's not to be changed. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of the, their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient. And that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. What's the point? We are to be the evidence of God's mercy to Israel. The way that God shows us mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience. What did he say at the beginning? All have sinned. We're all disobedient. We've all rejected. He goes on, so that he may show mercy to all. Does that mean everybody gets saved? No, it doesn't. It does mean that there's an opportunity for everybody. The opportunity for you to exercise faith and believe on the Lord Jesus. Romans finishes this whole thought. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I don't understand it. I can try to search it out. But it's way beyond me. And that's what makes God God. It's glorious. Father, we thank you that you are God. We thank you that you've called us to repentance. And we thank you that you've given us the faith that we can exercise to come to repentance, to reject the evil of our own sin and come into relationship with you again thank you for that sacrifice for my sins and we just praise you this morning I thank you that you are king of the universe and you're calling us all to hear your voice today Thank you that your prophet says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
draw near to God and he will draw near to you Lord we just desire and seek you first want to draw near to you I praise you in Jesus name Amen